You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part 10 in our series on Ernest Shackleton. This has been a great story, but we still have a lot more to do, so let's get right to it. Today we have four things to cover. Our agenda includes A, finding out what happens to Shackleton, Tom Crean, and Frank Worsley as they try and march across the mountains of South Georgia. B, discovering the fates of the men stranded on Elephant Island, followed by the fates of the Aurora team on the other side of the continent. Remember, there are seven men stranded at Cape Evans. And finally, D, do a wrap-up of the Endurance Expedition. We'll talk about some of the men involved, the ramifications of the voyage, and the enduring legacy of the expedition. So there you have it. Let us get started by going to South Georgia Island in May of 1916. This is where we left Shackleton and his five companions. They were on a beach in King Hawken Bay on the south coast. Shackleton had decided that he, Crean, and Worsley would march over the mountains to one of the whaling stations on the northern coast. He selected Crean and Worsley as they were the healthiest of the men. Harry McNish, John Vincent, and Timothy McCarthy would remain on the beach and wait for Shackleton to send a relief vessel. That's assuming he made it across the island. Vincent, and to a lesser degree, McNish, were not in good health. They had food and water and a crude shelter, so they would be all right, but not indefinitely. They really needed to get out of the cold and the wet. For the upcoming journey, each of the men would take three days of rations, plus some biscuits. They would carry with them one of the stoves, plus fuel, for six meals. Also, there would be a pair of binoculars, two compasses, 50 feet of knotted rope, and a carpenter's adze. The latter was a kind of axe. For marching in the snow and ice, McNish pulled nails from the James Carrot and then knocked them through the soles of the men's boots, making a crude crampon. It was simple, yet ingenious. McNish also fashioned walking sticks for each of the men out of the available timber. There would be no sleeping bags or tents. The plan was to march and not stop until they had reached their destination. The goal was to get to one of the whaling stations on Stromness Bay, a journey of approximately 30 miles. But we need to remember that Shackleton had no map of the interior of the island. After all, no one had ever crossed it before. Thus, there was no set route, so they were traveling blind. A major issue facing Shackleton was the weather. He could not just march into the mountains in a snowstorm. The men's clothing was barely adequate for the coast, but once they started up into the mountains, the temperature would drop. Thus, Shackleton needed mild weather and clear skies so they could move fast. The three men would depart in the early morning hours of May 19th, using the light of the moon to help them see the path ahead. Shackleton downplayed the departure, acting like it wasn't that big of a deal. Before leaving, he would write a note in McNish's diary, placing the carpenter in charge while Shackleton was away. 
He would also write, quote, I trust to have you relieved in a few days, end quote. McNish would walk with the three men for a couple of hundred meters, then shake hands with each and wish them good luck. It was just after 3 a.m. Shackleton led the way, following the shoreline to the head of the bay and then up into the mountains. Progress was slow but steady in the soft ankle-deep snow. The snowy slopes leveled off at around 2,500 feet, or 760 meters, and the men roped themselves together as fog descended on the mountains around 5 a.m. The three would go for about five miles before coming upon a mountain lake. They elected to cross it as it was nice and flat. The lake had numerous crevasses, small at first, but they grew larger and wider as they progressed. And then, around seven in the morning, the fog would clear and they could see that the lake went as far as the eye could see. The lake was, in reality, a glacier, and beyond the glacier was the ocean. What Shackleton had done was cross South Georgia at one of its narrowest points. They were now approaching the northern coast. However, the glacier fell straight into the sea at Possession Bay. While you might think this was good, it was not. There was nothing at Possession Bay, and the coastline was not something you could follow. Thus, the men would have to retrace their footsteps. This route offered them nothing. This is a reminder that the men not only had to cross the island, but had to actually cross it to a settlement. South Georgia is over 100 miles long. The coast is often nothing but impassable cliffs and rocks and glaciers, so you have to cross at the right spot. The retracing of the steps was a disappointment. Speed was so important as the men had limited food, and they couldn't survive long in the higher ups of the mountains, especially if a blizzard hit. And the blizzards of South Georgia were legendarily some of the worst in the world. The men would march east, eyeing up a range of small mountains. Frank Worsley, still the navigator, even on land, took aim for a ridge between the first and second peaks. At 9 a.m., the party would stop and some hoosh would be cooked up on the stove. After that, it was time to go up. The ascent up the mountainside was a slow affair, as the cliffs were so steep. The men often had to cut steps into the ice to manage the climb. At 11.30, the three would reach the summit. Looking over the ridge, they could see to the right a tangle of ice cliffs and crevasses. These would be impossible to negotiate. To the left was a line of glaciers that ran into the sea. Again, not helpful. Halver, dead in front of them, was a gradual rising slope that went for miles and miles. The only problem? There was a straight 1,500-foot drop, or 450 meters, into the valley with no way down. And thus the team would have to retreat down the mountainside and try the next ridge. This would go on for hours. Several times the men would retreat and try and find their way across the face of the mountain and make a go for the next ridge. They were forced to climb higher and higher to a height of about 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters. But each time there was no way down, just a straight drop. By the way, at the top of one of the ridges, the men could see the Allardyce Range, a 30-mile or 48-kilometer chain of mountains ranging from around 6,000 to almost 10,000 feet high, or 1,800 to 3,000 meters. This included Mount Paget the island's tallest peak. Of the site, Worsley said, quote, We were in a solitude never before broken by man, end quote. And he was right, as Shackleton, Crean, and himself were the first men to ever see this range. I want to point out that Shackleton and his comrades were doing all of this despite little experience in mountain climbing. Yes, Shackleton and Crean had experience due to negotiating countless crevasses and ice walls and glaciers on earlier expeditions, but this was a very different situation and the altitude, upwards of 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters, would have been brutal on their lungs. I mean, these guys had literally been at sea level for 500 plus days. This sort of elevation change in such a short time is not easy. And let's be honest, none of these guys were in good shape after all they had endured. The men usually could not go more than 15 or 20 minutes before needing a rest. No matter, they would go up and down the peaks, cutting steps as needed, and pushing forward because they had no other options. 
By late afternoon, a fog began to move in behind the three men. Fog was a serious danger, especially with night approaching. To try and move around on a mountain in the dark was wildly dangerous. This was especially true in the evening hours, as the moon didn't rise until after midnight. There was no way they could climb on the mountainside in the pitch darkness. The men would eventually reach the top of the final ridge, this one so sharp they could sit on the ridge and put one leg on each side. However, the good news was that the descent was not as steep as the other ridges. Ideally, they would have had more time to search out a different option, but time was in short supply. Once darkness set in, they would be stuck on the mountainside. Of that, Shackleton said, quote, We shall freeze if we wait here until the moon rises. End quote. And he was right. They would freeze to death this high up. The temperature at night could easily drop to well below zero degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 20 degrees Celsius. Thus, they would have to try to go down at this point, as there was no other option. Frank Worsley would add, quote, Darkness in front, fog behind. There was not much choice. End quote. The men would move quickly, but the path was so steep they would have to cut steps into the mountainside the entire time. In 30 minutes, they made only 100 feet or 30 meters. That was far too slow with the darkness and the fog moving in. And then Shackleton would have an idea. What if they slid down the mountainside? Crean and Worsley were incredulous at the idea. Slide? Seriously? What if they flew into a pile of rocks or over a ledge or into a crevasse? Was Shackleton joking? No, Shackleton was not joking. The truth is, they were going to die if they kept up this pace. They needed to get off the mountainside and fast. The others were skeptical, but they had no other ideas, so sliding it would be. For this bit of fun, the men would go as a unit. Shackleton would sit in front, Worsley next, his legs locked around Shackleton, and then Crean behind Worsley. They would use their length of rope to create a makeshift sled, sort of making three bunches in the rope for each of the men to sit on. If you have ever gone tobogganing, this is exactly what they were doing, except with a rope instead of an actual toboggan. With the decision made, the men did not wait around. I will read you Alfred Lansing's description of the descent from his book Endurance. Quote, they seemed to hang poised for a split second, then suddenly the wind was shrieking in their ears, and a white blur of snow tore past. Down, down they screamed, not in terror necessarily, but simply because they couldn't help it. It was squeezed out of them by the rapidly mounting pressure in their ears and against their chests. Faster and faster, down, down, down. Then they shot forward onto the level, and their speed began to slacken. A moment later, they came to an abrupt halt in a snowbank. End quote. Frank Worsley said of the experience, quote, I was never more scared in my life than for those first 30 seconds. The speed was terrific. End quote. The men sat there breathless, their hearts pumping hard, the adrenaline coursing through their bodies. They had done it, going two to 3,000 feet in just a couple of minutes, and they had not smashed into a boulder or sailed over a ledge. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean stood and began to laugh uncontrollably as they shook hands with each other. Their foolish and crazy gamble had been wildly successful. The only damage had been to Shackleton and Worsley's pants, whose backsides had been shredded on the descent. The men would have some food and then continue on with their trek. It was dark now, but the fog wasn't as thick at this lower altitude, and the temperature was much more mild. Still, they moved slowly, the men roped together, watching each step carefully so they didn't go over a ridge. They would march for hours, and eventually the altitude began to rise again. Around midnight, they ascended to around 4,000 feet, or 1,200 meters, then started to go back down. The moon came out to light their path. At 2.30 a.m., the fog would break, and the men sighted an island in a bay. They were excited. They believed it to be Mutton Island in Stromness Bay. This meant that they were only a few hours from their destination. But then they noted the glaciers surrounding the bay, and they knew they were wrong. Stromness Bay did not have any glaciers. This was Fortuna Bay, west of Stromness. 
Shackleton said, quote, the disappointment was severe, end quote. The men had turned too early toward the coast, and they were now forced to retrace their steps yet again. It would cost them several precious hours. At 5 a.m., the three would sight a pass in a ridge to the east. That was their next destination. However, they had been trudging through the snow and ice of the South Georgia mountains for more than a day, and they were exhausted. Shackleton decided they needed a rest. They huddled together, arms around each other, for warmth. Worsley and Crean were asleep in moments. Shackleton found himself nodding off as well, but he fought it. This is what he called a fatal sleep. A man, exhausted, closes his eyes, and in the freezing cold, the body shuts down, and you never wake up. As much as he wanted to sleep, Shackleton was sure that if he dozed off, they were all dead. Thus, after five minutes, he would wake the others, although he told Crean and Worsley that they had been asleep for half an hour. No matter, they needed to keep moving. The three men would head for the gap in the ridge before them, their altitude climbing another thousand feet. By 6 a.m., they had reached the top and were greeted by the first light of dawn. And more importantly, they could see Stromness Bay in the distance. Frank Worsley said, quote, it looks too good to be true, end quote. Down they went. They would stop at an altitude of 2,500 feet, or 760 meters, and have a meal. And then at 6.30, they would hear something. It was a steam whistle waking the men at the whaling stations on the bay. A half an hour later, at 7 a.m., they would hear another whistle. Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley were so excited, they shook hands with one another. Of the moment, Shackleton wrote, quote, Never had any of us heard sweeter music. It was the first sound created by an outside human agency that had come to our ears since we had left Stromness Bay in December 1914, end quote. Stromness Bay, by the way, actually had three settlements on it. Leith Harbor was on the northern extremity of the bay. Husvik was to the south, and Stromness was in the center. Now, the men at this point could veer left. It was a longer route and appeared not so steep and thus safer. Or they could go straight, which offered a more direct route, but looked a bit more dangerous. Shackleton, you would think, would go for the more cautious approach. That was his nature. However, not this time. He and his men were on the brink of collapse. For them, it was the shortest route possible. They dumped any gear they didn't need, including the stove, and shoved into their pockets a few biscuits. Straight they would go. The path would take them down for a ways, before the men found themselves blocked by a steep precipice. They could have retraced their steps, but the thought of going backwards, yet again, was disheartening. Thus, Shackleton elected to go down, and it wasn't easy. There was a 500-foot section, or 150 meters, that was especially dangerous. Shackleton had the rope tied around himself, and he was lowered over the edge. As he went, he would cut steps into the face of the cliff. Once his rope ran out, Crean and Worsley would follow, using the path cut by Shackleton. And then they would repeat the process over and over. One mistake could have been fatal, but after two hours, they would complete the descent. At the bottom, the men would push on, and then at 1.30 p.m., they came to a plateau, followed by another ridge, the final one on their journey. And thus, up they would go one last time, and at the top, at about 2,500 feet, or 760 meters, they could see their destination, the Stromness Whaling Station. They shook hands at the site. Below, the men could see people moving about. They jumped up and down, waved and shouted, but their voices were lost in the harsh winds. Shackleton said, quote, let's go down, end quote. Even now, this was dangerous going. One slip over a ledge could mean death. The three would eventually head into a ravine where the footing was better. At the bottom of the ravine was a glacial stream, which they would follow as it offered decent footing and a clear path towards Stromness. At around 3 p.m., they would come to the end of the stream, which spilled over a cliff into the ground, roughly 30 feet or 10 meters below. On both sides of the waterfall, there were only ice cliffs, which were impossible to use for a descent, and they couldn't go back, not now. 
the only way forward was to go down into the waterfall. They tied their rope to a large boulder, while anything of value, including the men's jackets, was tossed over the ledge. By this time, all the food was gone. Tom Crane would go first, Shackleton and Worsley lowering him down into the waterfall. It was brutally cold, but Crane reached the bottom without incident. Shackleton was next, followed by Worsley. The rope, however, was now lost as it was firmly attached to the rock above, so the men would have to risk going on without it. But things looked relatively level to the village, so Shackleton was not concerned. As the men made their final march towards Stromness, they would have been quite the frightful sight. Their hair was down to their shoulders, their beards were shaggy and covered in salt and blubber oil, their faces were black, their clothing was filthy and in tatters. When Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley entered the whaling station at Stromness, they were first met by two young boys, who fled at the sight of them. They would eventually be met by Matthias Anderson, the station foreman. He could not believe what he was seeing, these wild men, coming out of the mountains. No one ever came out of the mountains. After a brief conversation, Anderson took the three strangers to two off Surly, who Shackleton knew. But when Surly saw Shackleton, he stared in disbelief at them and said, quote, Who the hell are you? End quote. Shackleton replied, quote, My name is Shackleton. We have lost our ship and come over the island. End quote. Surly could not believe it. Some reports say he was so overwhelmed at the news, he turned away and wept. But the shock would soon be overtaken by joy, and word quickly spread that Shackleton had returned. One of the first things Shackleton asked for was a photo of himself, Crean, and Worsley to have a record of their condition. However, there was no film at the station. Worsley would say, quote, The world lost a picture of the three dirtiest men. End quote. What followed next was the spoils of their successful journey. They were given food, including cakes, bread, and jam, and a hot bath, their first in a year and a half. And then there was a shave and a haircut, plus clean clothing, and then more food, including a big dinner. It was an amazing moment, and I don't think amazing even does it justice. There was surviving the ice of the Weddell Sea, but that challenge paled in comparison to getting to Elephant Island. And then it got even more insane, the 800-mile voyage of the James Caird. I don't think any open-sea voyage by a small boat is more dramatic or extraordinary. No one had ever done that. And then there was the crossing of the mountains of South Georgia. Again, no one had ever done that before. In fact, no one would again cross those mountains for nearly 40 years. And those men had proper equipment, training, and planning. It really was astounding. Any one of those deeds is a great story. But all of them together are just freaking epic. Anyhow, Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley seemed to understand just how lucky and blessed they had been these past couple of days. The fact that they'd had good weather was a miracle. By the way, a snowstorm would descend on the mountains just two hours after the men reached Stromness. The sailors of the island would later say that the day Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley crossed South Georgia was the last day of good weather until the following spring. It is as if someone had given this brief window and said, here's your chance. In fact, the crossing of South Georgia took on an almost religious bent for the three men. Shackleton alluded to the concept that some other unseen entity was with them as they made their final trek across the mountains. This sort of thing was rare for Shackleton, who was not a particularly religious man. Both Crean and Worsley echoed these sentiments, the latter telling Shackleton, quote, Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us, end quote. No matter, Shackleton's job was not done now that they had reached safety. There were others he needed to get to, and he took that duty very seriously. That same night, a whaling ship with a crew of volunteers would depart for the other side of South Georgia, Frank Worsley on board to guide them. Worsley slept the entire 11-hour voyage, but the next day they would reach the men in King Hawken Bay. McNish, Vincent, and McCarthy did not recognize Worsley with his freshly shaven face, haircut, and clean clothing. They would return to Stromness the next day. 
As a note, the Norwegians insisted on bringing the James Caird back with them. Even then, they understood what a heroic little boat it was. They carried it ashore and took it to a protected location. As this was happening, Shackleton and Crean, after a welcome night's sleep, would travel to Husvik to organize a rescue vessel to make a go for Elephant Island. They would find a whaler available, the Southern Sky. The vessel was registered to a British whaling company, but no representatives for the company were in port. Thus, Shackleton would get the portmaster to release the ship to him. There was no shortage of volunteers to man the ship, as the Norwegian sailors were in awe of Shackleton and eager to help. In fact, before departing, there was a banquet held to honor Shackleton and his men. These were hardened Norwegian sailors, the kind of men who were not easily impressed. But what Shackleton had done astounded them. These veteran sailors felt it was an honor to meet and shake the hands of the men who had accomplished something most felt impossible. One sailor, a veteran of more than 40 years at sea, spoke of his admiration of Shackleton and his crew and finished by saying, quote, These are men. End quote. Shackleton was touched by the honest and heartfelt tributes offered by these sailors. They were, after all, the men who, more than anyone, understood exactly what he and his men had endured and accomplished. Now, there was no cable service in South Georgia so word of Shackleton's return could not be sent out to the rest of the world. Still, the boss would learn two major things. First, he would find out about the Great War. Millions were already dead. It staggered him and the others to hear the news. They never imagined such carnage. And the second bit of news was about the Aurora. We can't forget about the Ross Sea Party. While details were scarce, Shackleton now knew that Aurora had been stuck in the ice for a year and had just reached New Zealand less than two months ago. The news was troubling, but he could not let it worry him. The men on Elephant Island were his main concern. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean would depart on the southern sky on March 23rd, less than 72 hours since reaching civilization. Within three days of departing, the would-be rescue ship would run into ice. The southern sky would poke around and try to make her way further south and eventually get within 75 miles of Elephant Island. However, the ice was just too thick, and with coal running low, they retreated. Shackleton would bring the southern sky to the Falkland Islands in hope of finding an ice-breaking ship to rescue his men. Upon his arrival, the first thing he did was send a cable to the Daily Chronicle in London about his return and the plight of his men. The Chronicle was the paper that had bought first rights to Shackleton's story, and he wasn't going to renege on such a deal. Shackleton's wife, Emily, would get news of her husband's return just a few hours before the papers hit the streets. The news, as you can imagine, was a sensation, even with the war ongoing. Cables would arrive to congratulate Shackleton on his daring return, including one from King George. It said, quote, Rejoice to hear your safe arrival in the Falkland Islands, and trust your comrades on Elephant Island may soon be rescued. End quote. With England deep in a major war, there was no offer by the British government to rescue the rest of the crew, and there was nothing in the Falklands that suited Shackleton's needs for such a voyage. Thus, he would appeal to the governments of South America for help. The result was a trawler from the Uruguayan government, the Instituto de Pesca No. 1. The offer came with a crew. Shackleton took it. They would depart on June 10th. The ship would get within 20 miles or 32 kilometers of Elephant Island. Through the fog, they could even see the mountains on the island. But impenetrable ice would thwart Shackleton again. The Instituto de Pesca No. 1 was not built for the ice and would sustain some damage trying to push through the pack and the rescue attempt had to be abandoned. The ship barely made it back to port, her coal supply nearly exhausted. Shackleton was heartbroken by the failure. By the way, Elephant Island was mostly fogged in during all of this, so the men on the island never saw Shackleton's ship as it approached. I cannot imagine what that would have been like, to see a ship 20 miles off and then watch it turn around. It was at this time that Shackleton's hopes would be raised and then dashed. A British cruiser, the Glasgow, 
arrived in the Falklands at Port Stanley. The ship's commander offered to assist Shackleton if given permission by his superiors. However, the request was met with a terse no. The Admiralty didn't want one of her combat vessels out of the war effort for a couple of dozen stranded explorers. Shackleton was desperate now. He would sail to Puerto Arenas in Chile on the Strait of Magellan. The city was sort of a wild frontier community, and there was a sizable British population. From these expats, Shackleton would raise 1,500 pounds, plus another 500 from Chilean business interests. With these funds, he would charter a wooden schooner named Emma and make another run for Elephant Island. Well, the Emma was barely up to the task of sailing through Drake's Passage, and actually had to be pulled south by a tugboat, the Yelcho, for part of the way. Anyhow, things did not go well. The Emma got within 100 miles of Elephant Island, but was again stopped by the ice pack. She would putz her way back to Port Stanley in the Falklands. This was the worst of times for Shackleton. He felt helpless and was on edge. He began to drink to deal with the stress, and his dark hair had turned gray. Frank Worsley said he had never seen the boss in such a deplorable state. And then word would reach Shackleton that Great Britain would send a ship, the Discovery, the same ship that Shackleton had first come to Antarctica on back in 1901. The ship would need to be refitted, which meant that she was at least six to eight weeks away. But the news that stung Shackleton was that the Admiralty made it clear that rescue operations would be taken over by the Navy. He would have no role in the affair. Shackleton hated this. These were his men. He had left them, and he wanted, desperately, to be the one who brought them home. Meanwhile, the Chilean government would send the old tug, the Yelcho, to fetch the Emma and bring her back to Puerto Arenas. Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean would go with them. Shackleton's anxiety and nerves only worsened. His drinking got so bad, Tom Crean would watch over him to try and curb his intake. At Punto Arenas, Shackleton would appeal to the Chilean government for the use of the tugboat, the Yelcho. They said no at first, but would relent after he promised not to take her into the ice. And thus, Shackleton would make one final go for Elephant Island, departing on August 23rd. The crew, all 23 men, were volunteers. It really was a desperate move. The Yelcho was not designed for polar travel. The steel hull was no match for any ice. And the ship didn't even have a proper heating system. Still, Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley would steam south, their destination Elephant Island, some 1,600 miles away, or 2,400 kilometers. And with that, I want to jump to Elephant Island, where the stranded survivors of endurance had come to terms with the fact that Shackleton wasn't coming back. It had been more than four months since the departure of the James Carrot. If the boss had made it, surely someone would have come by now. The men's morale was low, as was their food supply. The general belief was that a go for Deception Island was inevitable. The men were listless, and many were on the brink of breaking. Except for Frank Wilde, who had been left in command by Shackleton. Wilde told everyone that it was possible the boss would still return. But if that did not happen, well, he would outfit one of the boats and sail for Deception Island in the first week of October. There were numerous issues with this idea. First, the voyage was directly into the teeth of the prevailing winds and currents. Second, there were only five oars left, which would limit the manpower they could bring to bear against nature. Third, they had no proper master sail. They could put together a makeshift mast, and they had an old tent cloth that could be used as a sail, but these were half measures. And the fourth and final problem was the boat. Both the Dudley Docker and the Stancombe Wills were not suited for the open sea. And so the men waited and tried not to go mad. Many credited Wilde with keeping them together. He was fair and even-handed, along with being optimistic and honest. Thomas Ord Lees, the quartermaster, said a big reason the men had made it to this point was Wilde's, quote, buoyant optimism, dogged determination, and calm demeanor, end quote. Despite it all, the men were breaking. The hopelessness was just so overwhelming. 
And that takes us to August 30th, 1916. It was like any other day, although the weather had been relatively clear and calm the last few days. There was a bluff near the camp where many of the men would wander up to and watch the horizon for any sign of a ship. They always came back disappointed. In the early afternoon, the men gathered in the hut as food was being prepared, all except George Marston, the expedition's artist. Marston went up to the bluff to do some sketches, a way to keep himself busy. And then at 12.45 p.m., the men in the hut heard the fast approach of footsteps. A few moments later, Marston entered and rushed over to Frank Wilde, the two speaking softly. The rest of the men, curious at the excited look on Marston's face, heard the artist say, quote, Hadn't we better send up some smoke signals? End quote. There was a brief silence as everyone processed the information, and then they realized what it meant. Ord Lees would describe the moment as follows, quote, Before there was time for a reply, there was a rush of members tumbling over one another, all mixed up with mugs of seal hoosh, making a simultaneous dive for the door hole, which was immediately torn to shreds, so that members who could not pass through, on account of the crush, made their exits through the wall, or what remained of it, end quote. Some of the men hadn't even bothered to put on their boots as they poured out onto the beach. But there, before their eyes, was a ship. Some paraffin and oils were tossed together and lit to try to make a signal. Dr. Alexander Macklin ran up to the bluff and attached his jacket to a crude flagpole as a signal flag, but he could only raise the jacket up halfway. Pierce Blackburn, still recovering from having his toes amputated, was carried out of the hut so he could see what was going on. The men could not believe their eyes. The ship was not passing them by or sailing away. It was heading right for them. On the Yelcho, Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean stood on the deck and scanned the camp on Elephant Island. The voyage south had been remarkable in that the weather had been calm. They had made outstanding time in the old tug, and the ice that had thwarted them on previous attempts had broken up and cleared off. They had first sighted the mountains on Elephant Island and pressed forward, and now as they got closer and closer to the beach, they could see the men. Shackleton was, momentarily, dismayed at the sight of the jacket that was raised on the flagpole. It was only halfway up, and he took it as a sign that there had been losses. But then they counted the figures on the beach. Twenty-two. They were all alive. Worsley said at that moment, years came off Shackleton's face. He was so relieved. No one spoke. They just shook hands. They had done it. About 150 meters from the shore, a boat was lowered from Yelcho, with four Chilean sailors getting ready to take the oars. And then a fifth person joined them, and on the island, a cheer went up. They all knew the familiar figure of the boss. As the boat neared the shore, many of the men just sort of lost it. It had been 128 days since the James Caird had sailed, and most believed they were never going to be rescued. But now rescue was before them. Some began to cry. Some just collapsed on the beach. Others giggled uncontrollably. A few minutes later, as the boat approached, Shackleton called out, quote, Are you all well? End quote. Frank Wilde, nearly in tears, would approach Shackleton and say, quote, We are all well, boss. End quote. Wilde asked Shackleton to come ashore and see how they had managed these past months, but Shackleton declined the offer. The ice was unpredictable, and he wanted to get moving as soon as possible. It would take two trips to bring all the men out to the Yelcho. They also brought along a few important items, including Frank Hurley's films and plates, as well as Endurance's logbook. Shackleton would note the bad shape many of the men were in, but they were all now on the Yelcho, safe. At 2.10 p.m., Frank Worsley would write in his logbook, quote, All well, at last, end quote. As the ship sailed away, Alexander Macklin stayed on the deck of the Yelcho and watched Elephant Island disappear. He would say, quote, I could still see my Burberry, which was his jacket, flapping in the breeze on the hillside. No doubt it will flap there to the wonderment of the gulls and penguins till one of our familiar gales blows it to ribbons, end quote. 
and thus the crew of the Endurance were heading home. It had been 21 months since they had departed South Georgia. Their rescue at this time was a bit of a miracle. The good weather the Yelcho had enjoyed was a rarity, and she had arrived at Elephant Island at just the right time. Two days earlier, and the ice would have been impenetrable. Such was the fickle nature of the ice pack. The voyage back to Punto Arenas would go smoothly. Shackleton ordered the men to not shave or cut their hair until they got to port, and a photo could be taken of everyone. The ship would radio ahead of their arrival, and when the Yelcho pulled into port on September 3rd, almost the entire population of the city was on the docks, cheering the men's return. Bells and sirens were ringing, and a band was playing. Once on land, the team would gather outside the Royal Hotel and a photo would be taken. It was proof that Shackleton had done it. He, not the Navy or anyone else, had rescued the men. That was a big deal to him. In a letter to his wife, he would write, quote, I have done it. Damn the Admiralty. I wonder who is responsible for their attitude to me. Not a life lost and we have been through hell. End quote. Shackleton was, obviously, bitter towards the government. But in a lot of ways, he was still stuck in 1914. Despite reading about it and hearing stories, he didn't really fully understand the magnitude of the war and how it was affecting the world. No matter, word would spread around the world of the return of the maroon sailors. Everyone hailed Shackleton for his efforts. At this point, members of the expedition would begin to head home, some to recover, some off to the war. I want to note that many of the men of the Endurance were broken, some physically, but mentally as well. Some of these men were suffering post-traumatic stress. We can't forget that what these men endured for nearly two years was harrowing. The overwhelming feelings of loneliness and hopelessness had been brutal. It had shattered some of the men. And the effects of this stuff would go on for years, even decades. It was a tragedy that was all too often dismissed at this time. So for Shackleton, he would go on a bit of a victory tour. The Chilean government was proud of their part in the rescuing of the men on Elephant Island, so they would bring Shackleton to Valparaiso and Santiago, along with the Yelcho. Shackleton would meet the Chilean president, and the crowds were gracious and enthusiastic. Shackleton loved it all, basking in the adulation and glory. But we can't forget that this story is not done, and that's because there are seven men at Cape Evans on the Ross Sea waiting to be rescued. And Ernest Shackleton was not going to leave that job to anyone but himself. And thus, let us jump back to the men of the Aurora. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In late March 1916, the Aurora, under acting Captain Joseph Stenhouse, limped into harbor in New Zealand after a year of being trapped in the ice and drifting out to sea. 
At Cape Evans, the seven surviving members of the Ross Party team would wait, knowing that they likely wouldn't see anyone until the following summer. Initially, there was a lack of enthusiasm for rescuing the men at Cape Evans. The expedition had no money, so Stenhouse couldn't even begin to refit the ship and prepare for a return voyage. And the governments of Australia and New Zealand were reluctant to spend on any such endeavor with the war going on. And people were critical of Shackleton for not having the cash necessary for such an event. Essentially, no one wanted responsibility for any of it. But then, in May, the return of Shackleton caused a surge of interest in the expedition and the Ross Party team. Shackleton contacted the governments of New Zealand and Australia and tried to get them to refit his ship so he could go and rescue his men. But no one really wanted Shackleton to be part of anything. He was seen as unreliable and was accused of incompetence. Even Shackleton's old comrade, explorer Douglas Mawson, was unsympathetic to his old boss. The sentiment was that Shackleton had, again, undertaken an expedition without sufficient funds and proper planning and was sticking the government with the bill to bail him out. And thus, a team was set up by the Australian and New Zealand governments to undertake the rescue, but without Shackleton. Well, this would not do. These were Shackleton's men. He would rescue them. Thus, he refused to give Aurora to anyone. Or at least he tried to do that. The rescue committee took possession of Aurora and named John King Davis, an expert ice navigator, as the ship's captain. When Shackleton arrived in New Zealand, Davis offered to resign his position, but the committee refused to accept his resignation. There was no way Shackleton was going to run anything. In the end, a deal was struck. Davis would command the Aurora, but Shackleton would go as an advisor. However, no one else from Shackleton's team was allowed on board. Worsley and Crean were given tickets home, and Joseph Stenhouse, Aurora's previous commanding officer, was kicked to the curb as well. The latter was more of a sacrifice to the higher-ups, who wanted to blame someone for Aurora's fate. Stenhouse made an easy target, even if he had only been following orders the entire time. Aurora would be refitted and prepped and depart on December 20, 1916. It would take her three weeks to reach the Antarctic ice. Davis, who had known Shackleton prior to the voyage, was struck by the changes in the Explorer. Shackleton was tired and moody, almost petulant at times. Anyhow, Aurora would reach Cape Evans on January 10, 1917. Shackleton and two of Aurora's crew would be the first to meet the survivors who had come running at the sight of the ship. Captain Davis would call the seven men at Cape Evans the, quote, wildest-looking gang of men that I have ever seen in my life, end quote. At this point, Shackleton would learn about the death of Arnold Spencer Smith, plus the disappearances of Aeneas McIntosh and Victor Hayward. The latter two had tried to cross the ice between Hut Point and Cape Evans the previous May, and had not been seen since. Ernest Joyce said that McIntosh had essentially gone over the edge, and his attempt to march across the ice had been a result of an unstable mind. No matter, a search of the surrounding coast was done, on the off chance that McIntosh and Hayward had survived, and had holed up somewhere else, but no sign of them was found. As for the seven survivors, they gave Shackleton an odd reception. They were, of course, thrilled to be rescued, but the attitude towards Shackleton himself was somewhat hostile. They blamed him for appointing McIntosh as commander, and felt McIntosh's decisions had cost them terribly, a not inaccurate assessment. Joyce was angry at the fact that Shackleton had pulled funds from the team, forcing them to hire so many inexperienced men. He felt it had been a grave mistake. Again, it was not an inaccurate assessment. It didn't help that all the work and sacrifice they had done was essentially for naught. I mean, Shackleton hadn't even tried to cross the Antarctic. All this made most of the survivors resent Shackleton. Before departing the Ross Sea, a cross was erected to honor the three men who had died earlier that year. Shackleton buried a verse of poetry by Robert Browning at the base of the cross. It was not discovered until 1947. It said, quote, I was ever a fighter, so one fight more, the best and the last. I should hate that death bandaged my eyes and bid me creep past, 
Let me pay in a minute's life arrears of pain, darkness, and cold. End quote. I want to note that Shackleton was pretty rocked by the deaths of the three men. He had liked to boast that he had never lost anyone on any of his expeditions, and it pained him now to know that others had died, even if they had not been under his direct command. No matter, the survivors would pack up and head home. Now, in New Zealand, and then Australia, Shackleton would go on a series of lectures. The public, as always, loved him. Thousands would attend at each stop. All proceeds were given to charity, including the Red Cross, as well as a fund for Aeneas McIntosh's widow, who, you will not believe, will pop up later in this episode. But you'll have to wait a bit for that one. As we have seen, Shackleton thrived in these public settings, and he brushed off the criticism of his more questionable decisions. In Australia, he confronted officials who accused him of mismanagement. He would flip the tables on them, pointing out that the governments of South America had rushed to help rescue the men on Elephant Island. They had not bickered and blamed others. They had simply done the right thing and acted. And he sort of threw the now-dead Aeneas McIntosh under the bus, saying the man had disobeyed orders by letting the ship get iced in for the winter, which caused so many of the problems that followed. Shackleton would ultimately get an apology from the Australian government. No matter, Shackleton was now poised to return home, but it will be a very different world than what he had left nearly three years earlier. The key is, what will be next for Sir Ernest Shackleton? Well, that will be a question for next time, but know that Antarctica will beckon one last time. So, at the beginning of this episode, I said I wanted to cover the crossing of South Georgia and then the rescues of the men on Elephant Island and on the Ross Sea. And we have done that, and it, sort of, wraps up the timeline of the Endurance Expedition. But there's still a lot to talk about regarding the affair. We'll chunk things out as follows. One, I will do a bit of an assessment on the expedition itself. What they did, what they didn't do, mistakes, successes, that sort of thing. Two, I'll take a look at some of the people who have been a part of these last few episodes and who won't be in any upcoming shows and give a bit of a rundown on their lives. And finally, I will briefly touch on the legacy of endurance. And that said, let's get going. With regards to the Endurance Expedition, the obvious thing we can say is that it failed. The goal was to cross Antarctica, and Shackleton didn't even get started on that journey. His response to the situation, however, is now legendary. Surviving on the Weddell Sea, getting to Elephant Island, sailing to South Georgia Island, crossing over the mountains on the ladder, and then rescuing his men. All of this was really extraordinary. Personally, I find the voyage of the James Caird to be the most amazing of these things. It's just sort of nuts that it actually worked. And to that, I think a big nod to Frank Worsley is in order. Without him, they don't make it. Now, I want to note that the Antarctic continent would not be crossed until the late 1950s. That was done by the Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition, and they acted pretty much like Shackleton had envisioned. One team, led by British explorer Vivian Fuchs, started from the Weddell Sea area and, using six snow tractors, traveled to the South Pole. Another team, led by New Zealand mountaineer Edmund Hillary, began in the Ross Sea. This team took four tractors and were responsible for laying supply depots. That team found a route up Skelton Glacier and onto the Antarctic Plateau, and then proceeded to drive all the way to the South Pole, which was something that was not in the original plan. Anyhow, Fuchs would reach the South Pole and then continue on, following the trail blazed by Hillary and his team, and using the supplies they had laid. Fuchs would complete the crossing in March of 1958. So, while Shackleton never got the chance to cross Antarctica, I want to point out that the Ross Sea Party did do its job, and in very difficult conditions. And this was done despite the erratic leadership of Aeneas McIntosh. The selection of McIntosh really turned out poorly, but we should point out that it didn't help that he had so many inexperienced men. That we can blame on Shackleton. 
McIntosh's decision to ice in Aurora at Cape Evans was flawed, and pretty much everyone knew it. And McIntosh worked the dogs too hard, despite warnings from Ernest Joyce, resulting in many of them dying. It just made everyone's job so much more difficult. And despite the team completing the depot lane, it left the men exhausted and suffering from scurvy. That, in turn, would lead to the deaths of three men. Now, as I have noted, Shackleton would never get a chance to try and cross Antarctica, and that is a shame. I'm not saying he would have made it, but it would have been fascinating to see what would have happened. Now, saying that, I do want to note that if Shackleton had tried to cross the continent, some doubt he would have made it due to health issues. For years, Shackleton had suffered from a shortness of breath and chest and body pains. Some have suggested that he had angina or congenital health defect, such as a hole in the heart. No matter, the thought is that Shackleton would not have survived atop the Antarctic Plateau, where the altitude rose to nearly 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters. The dry, frigid air would have likely wreaked havoc on his lungs. He would have had to endure such a climate for several months. Add in a poor diet, and well, the odds would have not been great for the boss. But it doesn't really matter to speculate, as it never happened. In the end, the big thing was that Shackleton and the crew of Endurance had survived. That was a triumph. And with that, I want to pivot to talk about the men of the expedition. Most of them would receive the Polar Medal, typically given to men who had been on such an expedition. And a few of them would receive other awards. But let's remember, there was a war going on, so the thrill of exploration really took a back seat to the battlefields of Europe. Now, I want to do a rundown of the men of the expedition. However, you should know that many of these men will be on Shackleton's next expedition, and thus I'll hold on them and wrap up their lives in a later episode. This list includes Frank Wilde, Leonard Hussey, Frank Worsley, and doctors Alexander Macklin and James McElroy. Even the cook, Charles Green, would be along for the next endeavor. As I said, these men we will discuss in a later episode. So now, let's take a few minutes to acknowledge the men of the Endurance and Aurora teams, who are not really part of our story going forward. This is a pretty good-sized list, but I really don't want to just forget about them, as many have been in our story for multiple episodes, and I hate to not give them a bit of a postscript, as they really did some amazing things. And with that, let's get going. The first person I will talk about is Timothy McCarthy, who had been on the voyage of the James Caird. McCarthy would die in 1917, when the oil tanker he was on was torpedoed. He was only 28 years old. McCarthy Island, in King Hawken Bay at South Georgia, is named after him. And in Kinsale, Ireland, there is a statue depicting McCarthy, along with his brother, who was also an explorer, and who had served with Robert Falcon Scott. Next up is Tom Crean, who would join the Royal Navy and become an officer during the war. He would get married in 1917. When he received his Polar Medal, it would be his third. Crean would retire from the sea in 1920, after an injury caused him to have some vision problems. He and his wife would start a public house in Ireland called the South Pole Inn. They would have three daughters. When Shackleton was organizing his next expedition, he would invite Crean, but the man would turn him down as his second child was on the way. Instead, Crean was content to raise his family and run his pub. He was known as a modest man. He put away his medals and awards and really talked about his time in the Antarctic. In 1938, Crean would develop appendicitis. However, as there was no surgeon available to immediately operate, it would burst. The resulting infection would kill him. He was 61 years old. Crean's pub, the South Pole Inn, still exists today, and you can go visit it in Oniskol Island, which is on the Dingle Peninsula in County Kerry. You can even go visit Crean's grave. Crean is, to be honest, one of the great figures of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. He never led any expedition himself, but he was a key member of the Discovery, the Terra Nova, and the Endurance Expeditions. There are mountains in both Greenland and Antarctica named after Crean, and in South Georgia, there is a glacier and a lake that bears his name. 
a play, Tom Crean, Antarctic Explorer, debuted in 2001. And finally, a bronze statue of Crean was unveiled across from his pub in 2003. The statue depicts the man holding a pair of his beloved pups. The next person I will mention is Frank Hurley, the expedition's photographer. Hurley's work on the expedition, and later on, was pioneering. He would make a documentary of the Endurance Expedition, and then spend both World War I and World War II documenting both conflicts. Some of his photos, especially from the First World War, are stunning. Hurley would return to the Antarctic with Douglas Mawson in 1929 and 1931. In his life, he made several documentaries and would even be nominated for an Academy Award for a short film. He died in 1962 at the age of 76. Another person who played an important and at times controversial role in the Endurance Saga was Carpenter Harry McNish. McNish was a difficult character. He was a master carpenter, and his work on the boats was so critical to the success of the James Caird. But McNish was also disliked by pretty much everyone. He was belligerent and confrontational, and almost always alienated anyone who worked with him. And Shackleton never forgave him for his rebellion in December of 1915. Thus, when Shackleton gave out the recommendations for the Polar Medal, he would leave McNish's name off the list. It was a decision many disagreed with, as McNish had done so much to help get the men home. To hold that moment against him was sort of petty. Dr. Alexander Macklin would write about the decision, quote, Of all the men in the party, no one more deserved recognition than the old carpenter. I would regard the withholding of the Polar Medal from McNish as a grave injustice, end quote. There have been efforts to grant the medal to McNish posthumously, but nothing has ever come of it. Anyhow, after the expedition, McNish would return to the Merchant Navy. However, he suffered some long-term effects from the Endurance Expedition. This included chronic aches and pains. They were so bad, he couldn't, at times, even shake hands with someone. After 23 years in the Merchant Navy, McNish would retire and work for a shipping company, eventually moving to New Zealand. An injury would leave him destitute and in poor health. He would die in 1930. McNish was buried in New Zealand with full naval honors. Also, an island in King Hawken Bay was named after the man. In 2004, a life-sized bronze statue of McNish's beloved cat, Mrs. Chippy, was added to his grave in New Zealand. McNish's grandson, Tom, said that that meant more than any polar medal. Next up is one of the members of the James Caird, Seaman John Vincent. Vincent was not the most well-liked amongst the crew, and on the voyage to South Georgia, he had been incapacitated by rheumatism. Still, it was surprising that Shackleton did not recommend the polar medal for Vincent. There might have been some unknown incident, much like with McNish. Otherwise, Vincent would continue his life as a sailor in World War I, even surviving a ship being torpedoed by the Germans in 1918. He would eventually go on to be a fishing instructor and then settle down, his wife and him having nine children. In World War II, he would return to the sea and command a trawler. While at sea, he would develop pneumonia and die in 1941 at the age of 61. Another frequently mentioned member of the expedition was Thomas Ord Lees. Ordlees was a Marine, and when he got back to Europe, he would return to active service. While attached to the Balloon Corps, he became a proponent of using parachutes and became somewhat of an expert. He would receive numerous commendations, including being appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire, or the OPE. After the war, he moved to Japan and taught parachuting courses. He would remain in Japan for the next 20 years teaching English and married a local woman after the death of his first wife. He also gained some fame for his winter climbs of Mount Fuji. Ordlees left Japan with his family at the outbreak of World War II, moving to New Zealand. He would go on to write travel columns. He died in 1958 at the age of 81. Next up is George Marston, the expedition's artist. Many of Marston's watercolors and sketches have survived, and they give us another view of the expedition. 
After being rescued, Marston would be a teacher and then go to work for the Rural Industries Bureau, which provided advice and training for rural industries. He would go on to become the Bureau's director. He died in 1940 at the age of 58. He and his wife had two children. One note about Marston that I never really talked about in the past was how important he was to the expedition's morale. In addition to being an artist, he was a good actor, singer, and entertainer. His skills came in handy on the long nights in the Antarctic winter. Another of the lesser-known members of the expedition was Endurance's third officer, Alfred Cheatham. Cheatham was a popular member of the crew and worked hard to keep things running smoothly, even in the difficult times. Sadly, Cheatham would return to Europe to find that his 16-year-old son had drowned while working on an ocean liner. Cheatham would become an officer on a British cargo ship, the SS Prunel, which was torpedoed in 1918. He was one of 12 men who perished in the attack. Another minor character in our story was Hubert Hudson, the guy who had the abscess on his buttocks. Well, on his return to Europe, Hudson would go back to sea. He would survive World War I, but not World War II. He died in 1942 when his ship was torpedoed by a German U-boat. Next, there was Pierce Blackborough, the guy who had stowed away on endurance. Blackborough was the youngest man on the expedition, just 19 when he joined up. Despite losing his toes to frostbite, he was a good-natured kid and a conscientious seaman. He would return to Australia and work as a boatman in New South Wales. He would marry and have six children. He died in 1949 at the age of 53 due to chronic bronchitis and heart disease. The last of Endurance's crew I'll mention is Lewis Rickinson, the chief engineer and the guy who had had a heart attack upon arriving on Elephant Island. Despite those health issues, he would join the Royal Navy and serve in both World War I and World War II, rising to the rank of commander. He and his wife would have two children. He would die in 1945 at the age of 61 due to lung cancer. That takes care of the men of Endurance, but there are a few men from the Aurora that I want to mention. The first is Joseph Stenhouse, who captained the Aurora out of the Ross Sea. Politics cost him his job after that, but he would serve with distinction in World War I, receiving the Distinguished Service Cross, an OBE, and several other awards. In an interesting twist, he would marry Gladys McIntosh, the widow of Aeneas McIntosh. I told you she was going to come back. The two would have a daughter together. Stenhouse would head back into service in World War II, but would die when the merchant ship he was traveling on struck a mine and sank. He was 53 years old. The next person I'll mention is Ernest Wilde, the brother of Frank Wilde. He would return to naval duty, but in 1918 he contracted typhoid and would die in March of that year. He would be awarded the Albert Medal for Lifesaving, posthumously, in 1923, for his role in saving the lives of his comrades while with the Ross Sea Party. The last person I want to mention is Ernest Joyce. Joyce was a controversial figure from the start. While highly capable, he alienated many who knew him due to his combative personality and oversized ego. He clashed repeatedly with McIntosh on the expedition and often undermined his commanding officer. On his return from Antarctica, he would be hospitalized due to the effects of snow blindness. He would have to wear dark glasses for 18 months until his eyes healed. He would clash with Shackleton as well, claiming he was owed money. Thus, he was not invited on Shackleton's final expedition. Joyce would remain a controversial figure throughout his life. He wrote many articles and stories, but was seen as a shameless self-promoter whose works could not be trusted. Like Ernest Wilde, Joyce would be awarded the Albert Medal in 1923. He died in 1940 at the age of 65. Mount Joyce in Antarctica is named after him. Okay, that's the men of endurance in Aurora, but there are two other things that I want to mention before moving on, and these are the vessels of the expedition. Well, the Aurora would be purchased when this was all over, providing Shackleton with a healthy profit as shipping was highly valued. 
Then, while carrying a load of coal from Australia to Chile, she would disappear, likely the result of hitting a mine. And this leads to a strange anecdote I want to share. In 1927, a man walking along the beach in New South Wales, Australia, found an old wine bottle. On one side was an engraving of a ship, and on the other side was an engraved message which said, quote, Midwinter's Day, 1912, Shackleton's Glacier, end quote. It then listed the names of eight men, including Frank Wilde. Well, the story was that Douglas Mawson had been given the bottle when his Antarctic expedition left England in 1911. Frank Wilde had been part of that endeavor. The wine had been drunk by the men on Midwinter's Day, 1912. The expedition's artists had then carved a picture of Aurora on one side and the names of the men at the party on the other. The bottle had then been left on Aurora and had still been there when she had shipped out for Chile in 1917. Okay, odd anecdote done. Nothing really to do with our story, but I thought it was kind of cool. So the last thing I want to talk about is the James Caird. The little boat had been through so much, and the Norwegian whalers understood that, so they had brought her back to their whaling station for safekeeping. While the boat would be returned to England in 1919. Three years later, John Quiller Rowett, who would finance Shackleton's final expedition, would present the boat to Shackleton's old school, Dulwich College, in South London. The boat was thus on display there until 1967, although it took some minor bomb damage in 1944. It was then that a pupil at the school, Howard Hope, led a drive to save the boat, which was in poor shape. The James Caird would thus be brought to the National Maritime Museum and restored. The Caird would be put on display at the museum until 1985, when it was returned to Dulwich College, where it resides today. Sometimes the boat is lent to other exhibitions and museums, and has traveled all over the world in said capacity. A side note about the Caird. In 2000, a German adventurer, Arvid Fuchs, built a replica of the James Caird, and he and three others would, successfully, replicate Shackleton's voyage to Elephant Island and then to South Georgia. They would also cross over the mountains to finish off the affair. Another replica of the James Caird has been built and is on display at the South Georgia Museum at Gritviken. And that's it for that stuff. Wow. And I didn't even cover all the men. No matter, I hope you enjoyed hearing some of that. So the last thing I want to briefly touch on is the legacy of the Endurance Expedition. But as I noted earlier, this will be brief. And that's because Endurance is Shackleton's legacy. It's what he is remembered for, even though he was a key man on three other Antarctic expeditions. With that in mind, we will save the majority of the legacy discussion for the end of this series, as doing it now just seems a bit premature. But I do want to say that, in the aftermath of the expedition, people acknowledged and lauded Shackleton for what he had done. But there was so much more going on in the world, specifically a massive world war, that consumed the lives of everyone. And thus, in a lot of ways, the Endurance Expedition and Shackleton were regulated to the category of glorious failures. It didn't help that Shackleton was not beloved by the scientific and exploration communities, not like Robert Falcon Scott, who was spoken of in revered tones, words that were being added to the history books in England and many other nations. But in time, those things were going to change. Alfred Lansing's book, Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage, will be a part of that transformation, and I will talk about its impact in our final episode. So that is it for today. Next time, we will get Shackleton back to Europe, where he will struggle to find his place in the world that has, in a lot of ways, passed him by. Of course, exploration will come calling again, and we will launch the Quest Expedition, which will bring to a close the heroic age of Antarctic exploration and our series on Shackleton. I want to finish up by saying thank you to all of our supporters. If you haven't, please go give our show a nice review on Apple Podcasts. All those great reviews help raise the podcast profile, and it doesn't cost you a dime. If you are interested in providing financial support to the show, you can do that on the website, explorerspodcast.com, 
and donate via PayPal or join our Patreon program, where you can get some nice add-ons in exchange for your ongoing support. Special thank you to our upper-tier supporters, including Rudy, Roger, Ralph, Philip, John Paul, Eileen, Eamon, David K., Craig, Adam, Donnell, and Dave P. To you guys and all of our show supporters, thank you so much. I am honored that you want to be a part of making this show work. So there you go. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time for Part 11 in our series on Ernest Shackleton. See you next time. Take care. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.